0: Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Ruben Ostlund has never been one to shy away from difficult themes. That's not to say that the themes he presents as audiences are controversial or difficult to watch. It's more that they're difficult to fully comprehend. Ostland's ability to translate his thoughts to the screen on such subjects, however, is unrivaled among any of his contemporaries. The square is certainly one of these pictures. Ostland explores what exactly the concept of trust means in a modern society where paranoia is the dominant human emotion and catastrophe seems to await us around every new corner. The Palme d'Or winning film centers around Christian, a curator at a renowned modern art museum in Sweden. One day, he's robbed in blind daylight and his ensuing decision to track down the thieves sets off a series of events that causes life to descend into chaos. I sat down with Ausland at the New York Film Festival to discuss his mind-bending new feature. We cover everything from how to make a -a two-and-a-half-hour movie breeze by at a light-speed pace to what Ausland, a teacher himself, feels is the most important part of film school. Hey everybody, it's John, and I'm here with Ruben Ausland. Um, Let's get right into it. I saw The Square yesterday. It was an amazing film. I think it raises a lot of questions. Uh, but I think that the best way to answer some of these questions and uh, describe what the film is about or the film's main themes is actually uh, the origin story of the idea. So if you could like, tell us how
1: this k- film came to be um, sure. to start off. Um, it, it started out actually 2008 because I was doing a feature film called Play mm-hmm. back then. And uh, Play is about... Um, very young boys that were robbing other young boys in the center of the city where I live in Gothenburg in Sweden and uh, it was inspired of these true events Um, and these robberies they took place in the mall in the center of the city uh, like for almost three years over and over and over again and I read through the court files of these robberies and um, you could tell it was very seldom that any adult interacted with, uh, with the robberies or stopped the robberies, even though there were a lot of adult people around the kids, um, just sometimes so as close as two meters away or something like that. And, and the kids didn't eat, ask for help either. Um, so it was like almost like the, the adult's world and the kid's world were taking place on two parallel levels. Um, and I talked to my father about this, and he told me uh, that back in the fifties, when he was brought up in, in Stockholm, in the center of Stockholm, his parents put an address tag around his neck and wrote the address to the, uh, the to the apartment where he lived and sent him out on the streets to play all alone. And when he told me that this, it was like so obvious that there have been like an attitude change when it comes how we look at our role as fellow human beings and the kind of responsibility and the social contract. Uh, on how uh, like other adults at that time in the 50s were someone that would help your children if they ended up in trouble and today we almost look at other adults that they are possible threat to our children mm-hmm. so in this context a friend of me uh, and I we decided to create a symbolic place you know like a white marked square where we should build an agreement uh, that is comparable with a pedestrian crossing You know, a pedestrian crossing is a couple of white lines in the street, uh, and uh, we have made a strong agreement that the cars should be careful with the pedestrians. It's a quite fantastic invention. And our idea with this white marked square is that we should build up um, an awareness of uh, how we uh, have a responsibility as fellow human beings and uh, how we have the possibility to also uh, put trust in each other, uh, so it was like, almost like a humanistic traffic sign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was actually the core of the idea, you know, when I, after I made Force Majeure. I, I still couldn't stop thinking about this idea, about this symbolic place. And we started to build it in, in four cities. We actually have had, uh, built it now permanently in, in four cities. So it's like a public art installation, sort yeah. of, yeah. Exactly, and, and then at the same time as we built the first one in Värnamo in Sweden, then we had an exhibition on an art museum. And suddenly I realized, ah, I can, I can actually I can do a feature film about this, <laughs> having the, the contemporary art world as a backdrop, uh, and put in the idea about the square, because I, I, I almost consider the feature film as an advertising film for the, 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 uh, the symbolic place, the square, in um, yeah.
0: It's quite a concept, and uh, you know, it it there's so many different layers to that sort of feeling about trusting other people, and even with your art, you know, like putting this crazy feature out in a world that's sort of. You know, you have this line in the film where these two marketing ad, ad execs come in and they're trying to uh, create a viral video, and they're talking about how audience can't stand more than what, like, fifteen seconds of a video these days. Mm-hmm. And then they go out and they lay out these guidelines for what makes a successful viral video, and essentially, it's the exact opposite of what you do with your film. You know, yeah. you've you've created a two and a half hour long film uh, that doesn't really put out this crazy grab in the beginning, but it's more of a slow burner and it gets crazy in the end. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, what I, what I want to know is how do you keep people uh, in, invested in your film in this crazy ADD world? <laughs> um, what are some of your tactics to keep your story and your film engaging in a mm-hmm. way that like, you know, for me, it seemed like an hour and a half long. Mm-hmm. Like, Great. You know?
1: mm uh well i think that one important thing is that you are very interested in you in the scenes and what's going on in front of the camera as a director and if you are not then the audience will feel that Mm -hmm. but um i mean i i i i've been working with quite long shots for a long time you know and the real-time aspect can build up a certain kind of tension um and uh, i don't know you know it is being very careful with the details and like um, you know show that show the audience that you have been thinking about all the details I think that Mikkel Haneke was an, uh, a master in, in doing this really like having quite simple shots that not that much happens but you are on your toes as yeah. an audience yeah absolutely and so I'm trying to approach, approach the cinema making in a little bit the same way you know when you are very very carefully and planned in what you are shooting and and still, you have to m- have the ability of creating a dynamic in that. You know, sometimes you have to be very alive and authentic, and sometimes you can go down in phase. So, a combination of trying to create the dynamics when it comes to the phase of the film, and also, um, yeah, also the I- image language and things like that. You have to uh, wild, exciting, and sometimes slow and very subtle. And, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because I find
0: that sort of a running uh, line in a lot of your work is this, uh, and for me that's what makes your work so exciting is that you have these family dramas or these personal dramas, and then you implement like strategies of suspense and thrillers in them. So I was just wondering, are there any other like specific? Uh, Sort of tropes or uh, things from suspense or
1: horror filmmakers in the past that you like to implement in your films? Actually, no. I would say uh, this was actually a little bit surprised for me also when I was editing the square that I suddenly realized that it will be almost like a thriller, yeah. thriller element in it with uh, with this boy that is after <laughs> the main character. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know. I I didn't think about it in that way. So, you know, I want I wanted it, like his how do you say his feeling of guilt and his uh, you know bad consciousness to haunt him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like a little bit thinking about you know a Christmas tale, uh, you know that kind of feeling. Too is is it real? What's happening, or is it in his just in his mind? Or yeah, the the Dickens, right? The yeah, exactly. <laughs> So then jumping back to, you know,
0: uh, the modern art elements of the film, uh, where do you see um, modern art's place in the world, uh, and how does that sort of align with film's place in the world?
1: I think I have a satirical approach to uh, the content and uh, the, the, the environment in, in all the worlds that I, like, I have investigated in my in my films. I mean, in Force mayor I was aiming the camera towards the ski resort, And I wanted to, like, point out how silly it is and artificial and how crazy that this human invention is. And I tried to do a little bit the same thing with the art world. I, I think there's quite many things that are silly with the art world. But at the same time, you know, the art world is a fantastic place because in order to embrace, if we just take an example and we can make that example the square, you know, the art world have the possibility to embrace an idea like that that is, like a little bit thinking out of the box, mm-hmm. uh, uh, discussing what kind of society do we want, uh, how do we look on ourselves in, in this society, uh, what's the idea about utopia, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it, that arena is, is something that the, the art world is, is making possible to, to, to create. And without that arena, I think it would be quite hard to discuss the things like the thematics and the things of, of the symbolic place, to square. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it's very, very important as an arena. But I think also what have happened with the contemporary art world is that everybody is so influenced of MoMA in New York. So all the contemporary art museums is almost looking at the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And they have pretty much the same collection. You see uh, Warhol, you see uh, Giacometti, etc., etc. And, you know, when um, Marcel Duchamp put the pisoire into the white cube, into the museum, Mm -hmm. then it was a provocation towards that room. It was like, let's discuss what we should use this room uh, for. And today it's almost that we are like repeating that kind of uh, exhibiting uh, the art pieces in the same way. So you don't really provoke the same kind of questions and thoughts that Marcel Duchamp did back then. Mm So I think it's it's there's a big challenge for those people that are working on, on an institution like in a museum. In order, how do you actually exhibit the art pieces in a way so it reaches out and and creates thoughts and also gets a connection with the world outside the walls of the museum? Mm-hmm. So then you know it seems like you had a very
0: clear um, message or sort of way you wanted people to interact with the public art of the, the square, how would you... What's your, like, ideal uh, f- feeling or interaction for your audience to, to walk away with after seeing your film, in that sense? I
1: think the one thing is that, of course, that you should start to reflect on your role as um, <laughs> a fellow human being uh, in a society, but also in the way that we have lost a certain kind of ability to organize ourselves, to deal with problems... As a community, you know, um, I know that the word liberal have a different meaning in the U.S. than it had in in Europe. But, you know, like we are getting so, so liberal and so, so like neoliberal and focused on the individual uh, and putting a lot of questions about how we deal with problems in society on an individual level. For example, if I recycle my plastic bag, at the same time, I feel powerless when it comes to uh, the environmental problems. Mm -hmm. So... Like the idea about regulations when it comes to a state level or a global level or dealing with problems uh, on, a, on a state level, for an example, beggars that we see on the street, you know, come on, raise the tax with 0.01% for the riches and deal with this problem together. Yeah. I think, I really, really think that we have to uh, start to work like a community again. Um, and um, yeah, the, I... I hope that the audience will reflect on these these kind of topics. Yeah, no, me me too. And you have that uh, that scene where
0: you know he's your protagonist is making these excuses uh, or or how he feels powerless, like how he does things um, to try and help the greater good. Is there any way, like, is there any way an individual in uh, even like the film scene can elevate his art to sort of uh, you know? like you say make uh the social like sphere more conscious of these issues or an issue in general and what
1: what's a what's a way for him to do that I I think it's about education of course and and the way that we are looking at like yeah the knowledge that we have about ourselves you know that we have about ourselves as a species that we understand that we are a an herd animal and uh in order to in order to change the possibility to actually you know have an decisions that is about these questions have an impact on society i think that we have to really really start thinking about um, yeah as i said work as a community but but it's a little bit you know it's a little bit like that this these topics are, are quite present today that we realize that this is not possible to to continue in this way. Uh, and um, to create awareness about this is, of course, big, big, big work and have to be done in many different levels in the society uh, in order to, to make people aware of this. But, um, yeah, making a film is one way. Yeah, <laughs> making a film,
0: and I mean, making a film that's uh, engaging and thought-provoking it's very surreal almost. Like, your world... Uh, one one word that I really like is the word verisimilitude. When your world that you're creating has its own rules mm. um, and your film, like, adheres to those rules, and as, as long as those rules are established, your audience will be, like, still in the picture. Yeah. So for an example of this, is you have... Uh, just a chimpanzee uh, walk into to an apartment that's owned by this other woman, but it seems completely reasonable within the world that you've created. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so my last question would be, uh, you know, you you actually teach film um, mm-hmm. at a at a university, and we're no film school. Uh, so and it's not like that we devalue the uh, the university process. And I'm sure it's a lot easier for uh, students per- perspectives, film students, to go into the arts in a place like Sweden, mm. or in Europe. Um, what do you think the the value of that education is? And how can people who aren't exposed to that sort of education
1: replicate it for themselves? Um, uh, I think that really, seriously, what, what I really, really think is the biggest advantages of going to a film school is that you can create a network of people around you that are on the same level and that are striving for the same goal and working together. I think that's the most important thing that was for me in film school that you know I met a couple of people that had the same way of thinking what we wanted to do. I met older teachers that now are my friends because we have the same kind of attitude towards what what how we look at the world, you know, and to try to build up that network. And, you know, my, my father's grandfather, he was a mesonaut for a group of artists in, in Sweden called the Halmstad Group. And they were painting surrealistic paintings in, like, around the 30s, 1930. And he said something that was, that I have always, like, brought with me. And it was that he said, you can fight as much as you want, but always stick together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because if you are a couple of people, you become so much stronger than if you are like an, a lone director or a lone DOP, etc. If you are a group of people and you create your own community, it becomes dangerous immediately. You know? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes like a movement that is going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that you really, really should strive for trying to find your group of people and work together and fight and be angry at the, each other sometimes, but also realize that, that being generous to each other is only making your own position better and your own position stronger. Mm-hmm. So try to find a, a group to work together with. And honesty too. It seems like
0: <laughs> honesty Very. can honesty can lead to anger, maybe or fights. But
1: sure, yeah, sure. No, it, it's really, really great if you do, you have you have the possibility to uh, being criticized and have like for me also now. You know when when you're getting established and you win like a prestigious prize as the Pandore, uh to have people that have been with you for many many years and don't, they still will criticize you just as hard as they've always m- been doing. And and don't take the, the the criticism too personally. It's about the film. It's mm-hmm. not about you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> great. Well, Ruben, it's been a real pleasure
0: talking. Okay. Great to start my day like this. Okay, great. Thanks. And uh, we'll see you on the next film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We're on any major podcast platform that you could ever possibly use. If you really like us, you can give us five stars on iTunes and boost our presence within the film podcast community. Be sure and listen to Indie Film Weekly this Thursday. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And if not, then you can hear my voice again on Thursday. See then.